y'all weren't here last week? Weren't here last week. You weren't here? This is just kind of a catch-up from last week right there. And did everybody get a copy of tonight? Charlie? Charlie, we got a few that slipped in past you and didn't get a handout. All right, did everybody get a copy of last week's handout? All right. Okay, does everybody have a copy of this week's handout? Everybody, did you get this week's? No. Charlie, I need some more of this week's. Well, bring them to me, son. You're not so busy that you can't bring them over here. Don didn't get them, though. It's on. No, it's on. Oh, oh, this week's. Okay, sorry. I was like, no, it's on. So Don didn't get last week's or this week's. Are you staying? Handout. So here's last week's. I'll give you last week's and this week's. You missed a good one last week. You need to go back and listen. Well, listen. This week's. Who does not have a copy of this week's? Everybody else got one now? All right. Okay, well, so here we go. Uh, start off with just a little share a little word about me personally. I love how the earth rotates. I just love it. In fact, you could even say it makes my day. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so, Chuck, did you get last week's too? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right in and see if we make it all the way through chapter 39 this evening. So, Lord, thank you so much for... Uh, just this beautiful day, this little bit cooler weather. Uh, thank you, Lord, for your presence here with us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for timeless, foundational stories upon which we build uh, our lives. And so, God, I pray that uh, even a familiar story like Joseph would always uh, just speak to us in new ways and remind us of who you are and of your faithfulness. And so, Lord, we just thank you for the time we have together, and I pray that you'd bless it and use it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there's a few, few folks that weren't here last week. We begin, we began, excuse me, last week, looking at the events of Joseph's life. That's, okay, that's this week's. Does everybody now have this week's? No. Do we need any more of last week's? You may not have next week's. Jim, I didn't just pull these out of a file. Okay, so we started looking at the life of Joseph, and we've called the series God Meant It from Good, For Good, and I confessed to you last week that I stole that title right off of a little book I've had for years uh, by a pastor named R.T. Kendall, and uh, his little book on the life of Joseph, that's the title, God Meant It for Good. And we're not borrowing his outlines for the study, but we are borrowing his title because uh, Joseph uses those. He borrowed it from Joseph, really, uh, later on in the story because of how we see God's hand moving throughout the whole thing. Uh, and so we won't just read over the whole outline from last week, but we did. We talked about his rejection by his brothers and how it seems, at least from a human standpoint, based on the story that God gave us here, it's based in part upon his own exaggeration of this bad report that he gave uh, about his brothers uh, for apparently no good reason. The text doesn't tell us that he had some good reason to do that. It just says he gave a bad report about his brothers. And we talked about uh, the, the word even meant that it was probably not true or even maybe if it was true, it was exaggerated. Uh, and that rejection was intensified by Jacob's favoritism. Right? The Bible said it plainly. Jacob simply loved Joseph more than any of the other brothers, any of the other sons. And he didn't hide that favoritism. He, uh, he flaunted it. He gave him the coat. He gave him the robe that signified that he would be the heir of the double portion, the one who would get the double portion of the inheritance. 
So we saw that, but then we said it wasn't just a human activity that was in play in the story. Uh, the divine activity, too, and, and a lot of it, <laughs> um, in fact, the whole story of Joseph, we said, is a story of divine activity in the midst of day-to-day decisions. And it's God's revelation to Joseph in the form of these two dreams that pretty much assured his rejection by his brothers. And so uh, then we kept going on through chapter 37, and we saw the brothers' retaliation. He had journeyed over 60 miles from home to go check on the brothers again. Maybe this was a pattern. You know, maybe Jacob would send him periodically to go check on them because it starts with him checking on them and giving the bad report. And then later on in the same chapter, he sends him off again to go check on them. And so he's 60 miles from home. He's by himself, at least as much as the text indicates he's by himself. Uh, And they see him coming, and they see their opportunity to exact some measure of revenge against him for being the favorite. And they were going to kill him, but then Reuben intervened. said, don't kill him, we'll throw him in the pit, because Reuben was going to come back later and save him. So, and we talked about this horrible, this this one little sentence that just speaks so poorly of them. Then they sat down to eat lunch. Remember that? He's in the pit. You can hear him crying. Guys, don't do this to me. You know, and they, and they sat down to eat. Oh, let's get a sandwich. Like, I, that just says so much about their frame of mind uh, and, and their hatred that they had towards him, right? Um, so Reuben was going to come back and get him, but we know from the story that these Ishmaelite traders were passing through. Now, let me stop right there. We didn't talk about this really last week at length because we were getting really short on time. But uh, y'all know what Ishmaelite, Ishmaelite trader, Ishmael, right? They were sons of, they were descendants of Ishmael. Now, who was Ishmael? He was Abraham's, right? So Isaac was the son of the covenant. Isaac was the favored son. Isaac inherited the blessing. And then there's Ishmael. And y'all know that, right, to this day, we are still dealing with worldwide conflicts related to the fact that Abraham went outside of God's plan and had Ishmael. And we're still dealing with that today and, and you know, the, the Arabs and, and, and Israeli conflicts and all how that plays out throughout our world today. But look, here is, here is God in his sovereignty, using the Ishmaelites as a part of his plan to eventually save his people. Because these are Ishmaelite, it's not, I don't think it's by accident that he tells us that they were Ishmaelite traders who came by that they sold him to. So y'all, God can use whoever he wants to use, however he wants to use them, at any point in history as a part of his plan. And that's what he did. So they sold him to the Ishmaelite traders, they went down to Egypt. They, in turn, sold him to Potiphar, and that's pretty much where we left everything, right? Uh, we noted that despite everything that had happened, Joseph never once played the victim card. We talked about the extraordinary expression of Jacob's grief that he said he would go to his grave, having never gotten over the death of Joseph, uh, or what he thought was the death of Joseph, right? When, it, when Moses died, the people mourned for a month. And here's Jacob saying, I'm never going to get over this. Um, that's how extraordinary uh, his grief was. So that chapter ended with him having been delivered to Egypt as a slave, Potiphar's house. And from a human standpoint, didn't seem like there's anything redeemable in that moment. But from God's perspective, now Joseph was exactly where God wanted him. <laughs> wanted him to be. That's the place where he would have him to be the place from which he would eventually use Joseph to carry out his plan to save his people, all right? We're going to skip chapter 38 because that's a different story of Judah and Tamar. It doesn't deal specifically with the story of Joseph, and we're going to pick up tonight in chapter 39. And again, I'll just ask you to grant me some latitude to read from the page because I blew it up and I can't read this little fine print. Chapter 39, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. 
His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. I love that. Like, he had this great overseer of the whole house in Joseph, but he still wanted a good cook. <laughs> right? I think that's awesome. Um, oh, to be that wealthy. All right. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. See, it wasn't enough that she'd already like accused him of this to the other servants. Like she, she like just laid the robe there. By her own, like waited for Potiphar. Just not a nice lady. Woman. Because <laughs> uh, I don't think she's much of a lady, but be that as it may. Where am I? So she's planning, like she's scheming now, right? That other, that happened in the moment. But now she's like scheming, right? She lays the robe over to the bedside table. And uh, when, when he got home, she said the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me, but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that the wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph, and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, there are four scenes, if you will, in that chapter. And we're going to just kind of take them one at a time here tonight, one scene at a time. And as the story there begins, uh, he finds himself from all appearances abandoned by God and man. Human logic would say this was the time for him to turn to thoughts of revenge against his brothers, right? You've seen this in movies, you know, the innocent man gets put in prison and he spends all that time plotting his plan to get revenge as soon as he gets out so maybe this logically from a human standpoint that's what joseph would have done should have done but he made a different choice he instead chose to trust god and ultimately to forgive now he says he's a stranger in a strange land or that he is trusting god in spite of his surroundings let's talk about those surroundings for a minute this was a unique moment in time because ancient history was still being written at this time, right? Now, these days, right, we hear stories about people uh, who come to faith in Christ in prison, 
because there's some sort of Christian presence there in the prison, right? There are chaplains in modern-day prisons. There are Christian services that are held in, uh, in modern-day prisons. When I was working on my doctorate down at New Orleans, we had a theology program inside the state penitentiary at Angola Prison, training prisoners in theology to be pastors. Now, they were never getting out, but training them to be pastors to other prisoners in the prison, right? That happens these days. Uh, we know from U.S. history that many slaves came to faith in Christ, and it was their faith in Christ that sustained them in spite of their circumstances. In fact, we still sing some of the songs that they wrote, for lack of a better term, uh, while they were slaves. That's now. But in Joseph's case in Egypt, he was it, right? There was no prison chaplain in Potiphar's house. There were no other followers of the covenant God in Potiphar's house or amongst Potiphar's other servants. He was it. He was the follower of Yahweh in Egypt. He didn't know he was Yahweh yet. Talk about that in a second. He didn't have a Bible. He didn't have a set of Hebrew scriptures. They weren't written yet. He is the story. He is the Hebrew scriptures being written as it plays out, right? He knew the stories. He knew. Think about This is like three generations removed. He knew the story of his great-grandfather tying his grandfather to a pile of rocks to sacrifice him to the covenant God. He knew that story and how God spared his life and put a ram in the thicket so that his great-grandfather wouldn't sacrifice his grandfather on that, on that day. He knew how God had given his father a dream of a ladder ascending up to heaven and how God had reiterated his promises through that dream and how his father had responded in awe and in worship. Like, like this is how close he was to those events that we think of as when we talk about the patriarchs. He just called him grandpa or dad. So the story's still being written. Uh, and what he knew of God, all that he knew of God probably, is what we call Genesis 12 through 36. Chapters 12 through 36. That's what he would have known. He didn't read it in a sacred writ. These were the stories of God's covenant that he would have been hearing about at family meals. Over dinner. And that's the spiritual background that he had. And look where he was. He has this. And what I mean by that is it, it wasn't much of a spiritual background yet. This is still happening. Look where he is. He was in a, a land, in a, in, a, in a country, for lack of a better term, with countless numbers of small g gods. Right? There were local gods, dozens of local gods who supposedly oversaw certain aspects of their daily lives. They had a number of cosmic gods, still small g, okay? Cosmic gods who were the gods of the stories that made up their meta narrative and their worldview. Even the Pharaoh was considered a god in, the human, in human form uh, among them. They, they were just gods everywhere right? And there were rituals and there were celebrations for all of these gods. And this is what he's surrounded by. And so here he is, a servant or a slave in Potiphar's house, the only known follower in that land of this as of yet unnamed covenant God of his great, great, of his great grandfather. All right, you follow that? The only known follower in that land of this as-of-yet-named covenant God of his great-grandfather. And he's surrounded by all of this opulence and all of this culture and probably all of this licentiousness that went along with the polytheism of Egypt and their hundreds of small g-gods. Uh, so, you know, here he is would have been so easy, I guess is the point I'm trying to get to, it would have been so easy for him to have abandoned that God of his ancestors and adopted the customs of the Egyptians as his own. It would have been easy. 
would have been logical, probably, in a, from a human point of view. Uh, but he didn't. <laughs> That's the amazing thing about this young man. He, he didn't. He didn't. So we're going to come back to our text. There's four scenes here. And the first scene is this. We, saw, we see him attain success in Potiphar's house. He attained success in Potiphar's house. And so that we will not mistake any other reason as the reason for his success, the Bible spells it out for us right here with the very first breath of verse 2 of chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, notice here it's in all capitals. Now, most of you have been in church a long time. You know what it means when you come across Lord like that in all capitals, right? This is Yahweh. When our, uh, when our English translators come to Yahweh in the Hebrew, instead of rendering it Yahweh, which is his personal name, they render it Lord in all capitals like this. Okay? So, uh, Moses writing this several hundred years later, about almost 500 years later or so, writing this, in hindsight, wants us to know that this, this is the same God who spoke to him through that burning bush, right? Now, God had not revealed his covenant name yet at this time that this is happening with Joseph. He hadn't done that yet. He does that, as far as we can tell, for the first time at the burning bush when he does it with Moses. But Moses wants, to read the, wants us, the reader, to understand the same God who spoke to him through that bush and the same God who led them out of Egypt later on, we're not there yet, is the same God that had called Abraham and was now with Joseph there in Egypt. And the Bible uses this name of God five times in these five verses. And that's there so that we, the readers, will understand that during this most uncertain time in Joseph's life, when he could see nothing of God but he's surrounded by all these little small g-gods. The covenant God of Israel was still at work. And he was at work affecting his covenant promises through Joseph. That's what, that's what Moses, that's what God through Moses wants us to see when we come to that usage of Yahweh God there in these verses. That even though Joseph couldn't see it, this was the God who's doing all this work, and he's fulfilling these promises day by day. So he's there all alone, but he wasn't really alone. God's with him, working on behalf of his covenant people to be a blessing to the whole world. So the Lord's presence was with him, and we keep reading, and we see in this scene that Potiphar's favor was upon him. Right? I won't take the time to read all those verses again, but basically verses 4 and 5 basically lay out the fact that Potiphar put him in charge of everything. First he was a servant, then he becomes Potiphar's personal attendant, and later on he becomes an overseer of the entire house with everything except the kitchen. He didn't, he's not in charge of the kitchen. I don't know why, you know, we'll find out someday. Told y'all last week one of those questions, uh, last week one of the questions when everybody says when I get to heaven I want to ask God, one of my questions, I want to ask Joseph, you know, like, why'd you break that, why'd you bring that bad report? Like, what did they done? But I might ask him this too, like, did Potiphar tell you why you weren't going to run the kitchen? Like, why everything but the kitchen? I don't know. Anyway, so everything else, though, he's, he's the charge of. That's the level of trust that Potiphar had on him. So he's moving through, and so it's not just now Potiphar's favor is upon him, but because of him and because God is with him, what we see is God's blessings flowing through him into Potiphar's house. Potiphar, who we assume was a pagan. Right? Well, there's nothing in the text that gives us any indication that Joseph and Potiphar ever sat down to talk about spiritual matters. Nothing in the story gives us any idea that Joseph talked to Potiphar, explained who the covenant God was, who his great-granddaddy was, what happened with his grandfather on the pile of rocks, how God gave the ram, and all that, that symbolized. There's nothing in the text that gives us any indication that Potiphar was anything other than a pagan. And yet, because of Joseph's presence in his house, 
and because of a promise that God had made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. Here, Joseph's receiving the favor of Potiphar and God's, through Joseph, God's blessing this man's house in spite of the fact that he's a pagan Pharaoh worshiper. Uh, but there it is. That's what's going on. Uh, he's the unwitting beneficiary of the covenant promise that God had made to Abraham all the way back in chapter 12. Uh, now, partially fulfilled, right? We know that that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Uh, but well-earned favor, we may assume from the text. Joseph, Joseph earned this by, by who he was and what he did. Right? And that, in turn, brought the blessing to Potiphar and to everything he had. And so we're kind of like, okay, finally, you know, all of chapter 37, this first part of chapter 39, we've gone through this whole story, finally a positive turn in the story that's going in Joseph's direction. Right? So it seems this is this, okay, good, something, fin- something good is finally happening to this young man uh, who... Trusts the Lord and walks with the Lord and has the Lord's Something good's finally happening to him. All right, let's go. Let's see how long that lasts. Uh, <laughs> uh, verse 6. Oh, but he was handsome in form and appearance. It's a curse, isn't it, Pastor Don? It's a curse. Uh, I mean, I'll never understand this, but I suspect you know something of this. He was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast his eyes on him and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to her, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And so she spoke to Joseph day after day. She was persistent. And he wouldn't listen to her, and he wouldn't lie beside her or be with her. So here's the kind of coming into the second scene now of the chapter. Uh, she comes, and she basically says, hey. And he says, he refused. He refused. So in the second scene, what we find is Joseph resisted temptation uh, by Potiphar's wife. And... Uh, just kind of we work through it here, a couple of thoughts on this. He's resisting this temptation in spite of ample opportunity to sin. Scam likely. This person, scam likely, he calls me more than anybody. Uh, amp, there was ample opportunity there, right? Because as we read the, the, the way it unfolds here that Potiphar's put him in charge of everything and everybody, of everything, I guess, except her in the kitchen. Well, he, she's actually, he's actually maybe in charge of her care. She's just not his for the taking, but he's over her care. We get the idea that Potiphar's not around a lot, right? He was maybe, I think we could say he was a military official. So uh, the picture here is of him not paying attention much to what's going on in the house on a day-to-day regular basis. And so he, that's, that's Joseph's job. So we kind of have this picture that he's not around a whole lot. The Bible tells us that he's a good-looking kid, 17, 18 years old, right? Uh, she's clearly on the prowl. Forgive me for using the crude descriptor, but, I mean, she kind of knows what she's wanting to happen here. So he has ample opportunity to give in to the temptation and probably, at least we're talking about human eyes. We know the eyes of the Lord see everything. But as far as human eyes go, he probably would have never, ever been found out. That's what I mean when I say he had ample opportunity to do whatever it is she was asking him to do. Uh, my, uh, my president when I was at New Orleans Seminary was Chuck Kelly. And uh, he tells this story one time. He had gone to uh, Nevada for a conference and was waiting for his flight at the Las Vegas airport. And he said it was just a weird hour, and the airport was dead. And so he's looking around. There's not a soul around anywhere in the airport, but there's this bank of like six slot machines right in a row. 
at the Las Vegas. I've never been to Las Vegas, but apparently they have slot machines in the airport. And so he says he sauntered over to the slot machine there, and he's looking at the slot machine and had never done the slot machine. So he was just, and he said the thought occurred to him, you know, if I were ever, ever going to play a slot machine, this would probably be the time for me to do it because there's ample opportunity here. There's this whole bank of all of these slot machines, and there's really nobody around, you know, to see this. But he says he just, the Lord stopped him, and he didn't. And he went and he sat back down. And he said, not five minutes later, somebody walks over and says, hey, Dr. Kelly, I'm so-and-so, so-and-so. You don't know me, but I was like, oh, okay. He goes, yeah, you know, I was watching you to see if you were going to play that slot machine. So he thought nobody, you see what I mean? And that was Joseph. Ample opportunity. Nobody would have seen, or so he thought. But, but he resisted, he resisted, that's the point. In spite of the ample opportunity. Uh, and in spite of abundant available excuses or abundant potential excuses. He could have come up with any number of excuses to go ahead and indulge himself. Right? His age 17, 18 years old, we don't remember that, but scientists, sociologists, other people tell us 17, 18 years old, he was at that point in his life where his hormones would have been just in full force, right? Uh, his family was all the way off up in Canaan. They would have never found out. They'd abandoned him anyway. Well, the ones that knew he was still alive. The others thought he was dead, so he's like, well, my family's up there. Now, this is interesting. He was, a, he was a slave. He was a servant, right? And so it was kind of expected that that was a part of what it meant to be a slave or a servant. And so, uh, in a sense, he could have kind of kind of used the excuse of, hey, you know, this is just sort of what's done in this world. So that's expected of me to do this uh, for her or with her, right? That was an available potential excuse. And, uh, you know, maybe he might have thought, hey, you know, I've got good standing with Potiphar, and as long as Potiphar doesn't find out, if I go ahead and do this, I'll have even better standing with her. You know, all these potential excuses. Yes? Why did he make adultery here? Why did, I don't know, Chuck. That's a great question. And when we get to heaven, I'm going to let you ask him that one right after I ask him about the first one. Why didn't he make a bad report on her? Because <laughs> we talked last week about he made a bad report on his brothers. But he had all these potential excuses right there at the taking. Uh, and he could have chosen one or more of any of them and gone on ahead and given in. But he didn't give in. He resisted. And I put on your handout, he resisted because of his respect. And we read verse 8 and 9, and he says to her, uh, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am. That's a bold statement right there. Okay? He's not greater in this house than I am. That means I'm even with him in this house. And he's not kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So I said he, he, I said he did it because of, he, re, he resisted because of his respect uh, first, because of the respect that he had for the trust that he'd been given. He recognized that it was something unusual and unique. And he understood that he'd been entrusted with care of this entire household, I guess, except the meals. Um, and that in Potiphar's mind, that included caring for her best interest too. That is a huge amount of trust. My son is 19 years old. He texted me today to ask me if he should button his top button on his shirt when he's wearing a tie. And he sent me a picture and I had to say, buddy, don't forget to cut the tag off of the sleeve on your jacket. I love him. I would step in front of a train for that boy. I wouldn't trust him with my house to run my household in my absence. And if he ever hears this, I'll apologize to him. Okay. I repeat, I would step in front of a train for that boy, you know, but he's not ready to run a household. 
And yet here's Potiphar with that amount of trust in an 18, 17, 18-year-old young man. And Joseph says, this, this, I have too much respect for the trust that I've been given in this household to, to commit this sin. Right? Uh, so it was that, but it was also out of respect for Potiphar. Himself, Potiphar the man, not just Potiphar's trust, but respect for Potiphar the person. Okay? He, says, he says to her, he's not kept back anything from me except for you. Right. Let me back up. When I talk about his respect for the trust he'd been given, that included her. And so he's showing respect to her by not doing this thing. Uh, and then here it's respect for Potiphar the person, not just Potiphar's trust, but for Potiphar the person. He's kept back everything. He, he's, basically, you're the only thing he's kept back from me. So if I do this, I'm sinning against him. And then, of course, out of respect for God himself, right? Uh, he didn't know God's name yet. He certainly didn't know what God's plan was yet, although later on he'd recognize it in the rearview mirror. Uh, but he recognized God's presence with him. And a part of him understood that he was enjoying the favor of Potiphar and he was seeing God's blessings in abundance because God's presence was with him. He understood what he knew about God. He understood enough that it was it was because of God that he was enjoying these blessings. And he says, I cannot sin against God by doing this thing. He had too much respect for the trust he'd been given for Potiphar, the person and too much respect for God to do it. And so she just keeps trying. It says that the verse 10 says day after day, day after day. And it says he wouldn't listen to her or lie with her or be with her. And so we're like, okay, well, all right. Scene one. I know. We talked about that last week a little bit. We said, it's like, Hollywood couldn't do this. You know? Uh, so scene one, something finally kind of turns his way in the story, and we're like, great. Scene two, eh? he does right, but where's this thing going now? And so we want to believe that God honored that decision by making her go away, Right? Or maybe God honored his obedience, Joseph's obedience, by causing her to be found out, right? Or maybe Potiphar gets home and she brings out this robe and she says, look what happened. And Potiphar says, you liar, I know the whole truth. You, you know, we, we want, that, that's how it would go in the movies, right? Or at least in the Christian movies, you know. God would honor Joseph's obedience. He would honor his faithfulness by having everything happen and make it all turn Joseph's way. That's, that's how it goes in, in like Christian movies, right? But alas, we read, the next time she comes, she grabs his clothes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not read it all again. I'll just try to pick up the pace here a little bit. She grabs his clothes. He runs off. Now, we talked this week, we did a little bit last week about the way they pulled the robe off of him. You see these repeating sort of moments in this story. Last week it was the brothers ripping the robe off of him. And we talked just a little bit about the, the violence of that. That the word in the Hebrew actually was a word that could also be used for skinning an animal. Yeah. And here it says that she takes his clothes. Now, I've never been in this particular situation. But I have to imagine that this isn't just, you know... She grabs his robe, and he's like, oh. And it, I mean, there, there's a scene here, right? Uh, I don't know if she's attacking him the way his brothers did, but you, you, they're fighting here. He's putting up a fight. He's trying, and he's putting it, but it, she ends up with his robe anyway. This is how determined she was. 
This is how determined she was. And she gets his robe, and he just runs off naked. Like, I'm getting out of here. And so now she's just left holding the robe. Now, now she's like, now how do I explain this? So she just turns it all on him, right? Uh, that's why I put in your notes, no good deed goes unpunished. It's a, that exact little version of it's attributed to Oscar Wilde. It's attributed to four or five other people, too, over time. Nobody exactly knows where that little expression came from. But, you know, that's kind of like what's happening to him here. He's been faithful. He's been obedient. He's resisted her temptation. He's, he's done right by God. He's done right by her. He's done right by Potiphar. And now, now he's just right back in the pickle again. You know, it's like, come on. Uh, and so what I want to do, I want to talk about the anatomy of a false accusation. And I want to be careful here. Because there is a difference between a false accusation and a legitimate one. A few years ago, I heard a sermon where the preacher called this scene here. He called this Potiphar's wife's Me Too moment. And folks, that flew all over me in all the wrong kind of ways. Because the implication he was making was that any accusation, or maybe the majority of accusations, uh, are false accusations. But folks, that's not the takeaway from this story. Okay? Sexual crime is crime. Period. And sometimes there may be a false accusation, but we should never assume that every report is a false report. So when we're talking about Potiphar's wife here, that doesn't give us the privilege to come along to another situation and go, well, yeah, he did that, but did you see how she was dressed? No, we don't have that right, okay? I'm meddling, but I got two daughters too. Uh, this is a false accusation. So we're not talking about girls in general. We're not talking about women in general. We're not even talking about Delilah or uh, somebody else. We're talking about Potiphar's. That's, she's the only one we're talking about right now. She's making the false accusation. This was not a Me Too moment. <laughs> it was just a lie by a bad person. So get that off my chest. Let's talk about the anatomy of a false accusation. And the first thing we see are lies. She lies. She concocts this whole story. You know, I'm not going to retell it again, but she concocts this whole ornate thing about how he came in and he, he mocked me, he laughed at me. And so I, I guess she wanted him to believe that he disrobed and that when she told him no, he didn't think to take his clothes back with him when he left. I don't know, but she lied. She's lying. All right. That we, so we see that this is a part of a false accusation, but there's something else she does here to, to, to sort of lend credence to her false accusation and that is that she she plays up to their prejudices she appeals to prejudice you see what she does here twice she says that hebrew you catch that two times she says that hebrew and uh we're not going to chase this one too far but i think maybe we could think of instances where even today you know, there might be moments where people lodging an accusation might appeal to someone else's prejudices to try to lend credit to their version of the events. And that's exactly what she's doing here. You know, all oh, that Hebrew guy y'all brought down here. Okay? So she's appealing to some prejudice inside of them. And then we see this blame shifting. And interestingly enough, it's the lie that shifts the blame to Joseph. So that's not what I'm talking about when I say blame shifting. She tells Potiphar, that Hebrew boy you brought here. You see that? Oh, that Hebrew person you brought into this house. He did this thing. You know, taking more of it off of her. Like she's already put what she can on Joseph. Now she's going to take it off of her and put it on, on Potiphar too. There's, there's, this is reminiscent a little bit of what happened in the garden. Right? I mean, so... Joseph did what Adam and Eve couldn't do, right? God said, you can eat of every single fruit in the garden except this one. And Joseph said, he gave me charge over anything in this house except for you. 
So he did what Adam and Eve couldn't do. All right, so that's one thing that's interesting. But, then, but what she's doing here is exactly what, what Adam did in the garden when God confronted him. He said, God, funny thing, that woman you gave me, she came to me and told me to eat this fruit. Right? You see? That, that to me, that's the most pitiful part of that whole entire fall narrative in Genesis 3. I really do believe that's the, that is the low water moment of the story of Adam and Eve, is when Adam has the audacity to go, God, that woman that you, because he's not just blaming her now, see? God, that woman that you brought to me, and that's exactly what Potiphar's wife's doing here. That Hebrew that you brought into this house, it's this blame shifting. It's like, it's everybody's fault except for mine, right? And so we see that's exactly what she's doing. So we see this, this false accusation, right? This anatomy, I call it a false, anatomy of a false accusation. There might be a better word for it, but that's what I called it. So just as we thought the story had turned in, Potter, in uh, Joseph's favor, you know, he's number one in the house. He's got charge over everything. Potiphar loves him. Potiphar's whole house is being blessed. Then we meet the temptation, and he resists it. But we're like, oh, how's this thing going to shake out? And so in scene three now of the chapter, we see what happens. She's blamed it on him. Potiphar believes her. Potiphar's anger burns against Joseph. And what does he do? He puts him in prison. He puts him in prison. Uh, so we think it's turned in his favor. But now he's, now he's in prison, just like in the beginning of the chapter, he was a slave in Potiphar's house. So we're going to go then to the fourth and final scene of the chapter, and it's going to sound familiar. In fact, your note sheet will look almost identical. And I did that on purpose. Because in the final scene, Joseph attains success. Only this time, not in Potiphar's household. This final scene, Joseph attained success in prison. And we read this in verse 21. Verse 20, the king's prisoners, they're confined, and he's there in prison. Now again, okay, all right. So the chapter starts by telling us that the brothers had sold him to the Ishmaelites, and the Ishmaelites had sold him as a slave in Egypt, and now he finds himself in Potiphar's house. And we, we said, but look, God orchestrated all of those events to get him exactly where he needed him to be so that he could be where he needed him to be so that he could eventually use him to bring about the salvation of his people. All right? So listen to this now. Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison. Oh, by the way, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there with them in prison. I'm going to get a little bit ahead now of next week. You know why this is important? He's in the prison where the king's prisoners are. What happens next week? Well, what happens next in the story? The baker and the butler have their dreams. How coincidental that he just happened to end up in the same prison as the king's baker and the king's butler. What a coincidence. Folks, there's, it's providence. It's not coincidence. Here again, God's putting him exactly where he wants him to be. So that he'll be where God has him for when the moment is right. And that's, well, here he is again. Same, same kind of deal. Uh, but then we read this. Verse 21. This is going to sound familiar. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So up in the first part, we had five instances of, of the covenant name of God. And down here in these last few verses, we have three more instances. It brings eight total for the whole chapter, uses of this covenant name of God, which we don't read again in Genesis until Jacob's death. But in this particular story, in this particular moment, 
God inspired Moses to use this particular name of God, reminding us of his covenant love, his covenant promise. He's the covenant keeper. So that in spite of all this stuff that's happening there, it's Yahweh God. All right, Eight times in this chapter, never again in Genesis until Jacob's death. And half of these, four of them, is to remind us Yahweh was with Joseph. He's with him. All right? And so we read that, and once again, we see the Lord's presence is with him. The Lord was with him, and his steadfast love was upon him. All right? And only this time it's not Potiphar, it's the prison keeper. The prison keeper's favor was upon him. And then God's blessings running through him. And it's not quite as explicit here as it is with Potiphar's house, but what it says here is whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So I don't know what success in prison looks like. You know, what, what, maybe they were all just real orderly and they didn't fight and they took their meals clean. I don't know. But whatever it was, the Lord made it succeed. And so this blessing is still flowing through Joseph. And so Noah, Bible says Noah was righteous. Abraham walked with God. But here in Joseph, it doesn't give us the indication that God was doing this blessing because of Joseph did this or because Joseph did this. Simply because the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Now, we know he was doing well and he was doing right. We know that. But the text tells us this is all because the Lord was with him. And so now this blessing's flowing through him yet again. So it bookends the chapter. You know, it bookends the, the chapter uh, of, of what was going on there in Potiphar's house. So let's, three points of application. Last week I told you guys, uh, uh, just because... You know, because he's good, because he's true, his plans don't fail, we can face life with, with hope, right? Uh, this week's going to be real similar, and the first one is this. God's chastening isn't necessarily punishment. His chastening isn't necessarily punishment. Now, we don't use the word chasten a lot these days, you know, but look it up if you want, and it, it has to do with bringing or using adverse circumstances or discipline in order to bring about a positive change and so god will do that it's his right to do that to chasten us to make us to mold us into the people he would have us to be that doesn't mean that it's always related to the punishment and so i just noted over here in hebrews says god disciplines those whom he loves remember that verse in hebrews he disciplines those whom he loves and so, you know, it's not necessarily punishment. And then further, his plans are far greater than our personal vindication. And what I mean by that is, it, what God's doing in the world is so much bigger and so much more important than me being personally vindicated every time I'm done wrong. Right? I mean, let's bring it down even a little closer to home. That, that's, that's especially true in a church, isn't it? You know, sometimes church members are made up, churches are made up of people. Did y'all know that? And people aren't perfect. Did you know that? I mean, there's, Terry Pittman's about as close to perfect as I think a person could be next to Pastor Don, but, but they're not perfect imperfect people sin and so what i'm getting at is like even in a church there will be times somebody's gonna rub you the wrong way or hurt your feelings and somebody might even think you did something or said something you didn't do or said or maybe you did it but not for the reasons they thought or were the motives they thought or whatever and this has been hard for me as like on this side of ministry like in the in the staff kind of role and in the years 12 years i spent as a pastor you know there will be times that I may not ever get the personal vindication for something I did or said that got taken wrong. or You know, you know what I mean? Or somebody accuses you of doing something you didn't do or they, they misjudge your motives or, or whatever. But what God's doing is so much more important than that. And as we read the story, giving it away because you've got to go forward, 
Joseph's innocence is never, never recognized at any point in this story. Never. He is not put in charge of Pharaoh's uh, courts as governor because they realized, oops, Potiphar's wife lied and they did him wrong, so we better take care of this situation. No, that's not what happens. He's put in that because of what happens with the dreams, with the butler and the baker and the way those get interpreted. And then, okay, but his innocence with Potiphar's wife, it's, it's, nobody ever finds out that he didn't do it. He's never vindicated. Well, for us he is, because we read the whole story. But for the people in the story that it's all playing out, he never gets that moment. And, and so we just kind of, kind of, we have to remember that as we live our lives, you know. What God's doing is so much bigger than my personal feelings at any given moment. And folks, that's, that's hard for me sometimes because I, I want to think I do people right. I want to think I'm nice. And, and yet there's going to be times that I, I, I make somebody mad. And I think I'm innocent. And I may never get vindicated. And that's okay. It's okay. Because God's ultimately in control of it all. And so that then the third one is that God's with us in every circumstance, even when we can't see him. Joseph didn't see him, but he knew he was there. And since he's spirit, you know, we're not going to see blinding lights. And we, we might, but we're probably not. He's probably not going to come down and write on this wall with a magic hand. He could, he's God, if he wants to, but he's probably not. You know, there's a reason why those stories are remembered the way they are because they were unique instances but that doesn't mean he's not here it doesn't mean he's not present it doesn't mean he's not with us right and so here's the thing uh jesus uh i don't want to about i don't want to butcher this but in the hebrew like joseph and joshua have similar roots and they have they, they speak to salvation right they speak to salvation and so we get to the new testament and god incarnate comes and his name is jesus and it's in sort of a way a derivation of of joseph but what is the bible tell us also about jesus he shall be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So Joseph's not our Savior today, right? Y'all know that. The way he was for his family when they came down during the famine. But Jesus is. And his name means God with us. And he said, I'm with you always. You know, so even in those dry spells, even in the dry spell, he's with you. He's there. He's present. He has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. The butler, the baker, they're going to forget you. He'll never forget you. He's with you to the end of the age in the presence of Jesus your savior isn't that good i don't know i we're not going to finish this story next week but i am going to let terry go ahead and start daniel in two weeks so can we do this maybe like in the spring we'll get as far as we can get next week and then in the spring we'll do the similar deal pastor don can kick it off in january with a study and then i'll pick up and we'll finish joseph then can we do something like that because we're not going to finish next week because i'm too long-winded i know that about me but y'all are so awesome. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this story. Thank you for your presence with us, just as you were present with Joseph there in prison and in Potiphar's house and in the pit and all those places where in a human mind we wouldn't picture you being there with him. We know you were because you are a faithful covenant God who keeps your promises. And so, Lord, now we just pray the same thing for ourselves, that we would... Be reminded of your presence always with us uh, in the presence of your Holy Spirit and in Christ in me, Christ in us, Lord, you're, you're always with us. 
So, Father, even in those dry spells, even in those moments where we don't uh, get the human vindication that we might think we deserve, remind us that you're there. Remind us that you're working. Remind us that your plans will prevail and that we can trust you. And so thank you again for Joseph and for his example and for our Savior Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. I forgot to ask the questions, but we're out of time. Y'all are so kind to come back. Man, this is my one of my all-time favorite Bible stories, if y'all can't tell. Thank y'all. I'm going to go to...